Welcome to the New Books Network. America's religious and political public forum is no longer confined to debates between liberals, be they Catholics or Protestants, and socially conservative evangelicals and traditional Catholics, with atheists condemning all of the above. There is now among some Catholic intellectuals and academics a movement called Integralism, the calls for the United States to move towards an integration of church, the Catholic church, and state. This movement, in turn, is opposed by other conservative Catholics who regard integralism as not only unworkable, but also undesirable, especially in the robustly pluralistic America of our day. Meanwhile, on both the woke left and the alt-right, there are essentially neo-pagan movements which reject the American founding's identification of ethical monotheism as a foundation of fundamental rights and political and personal moral obligations. Enter scholars with a call to rediscover and revivify the classical and Christian sources of the founding. In their 2022 book, The Classical and Christian Origins of American Politics, Political Theology, Natural Law, and the American Founding, Justin Buckley Dyer and Cody W. Cooper argue that this political philosophy, predating Aristotle and continuing through such, such thinkers as Thomas Aquinas to Lincoln to Martin Luther King to scholars of our own day, offers a way forward toward just society built on the rich, strong, easily grasped moral framework of natural rights and natural law. The book we will discuss today with one of its co-authors, Professor Cooper, shows that many of the leaders of the American founding were steeped in the natural law tradition, and that this tradition, while often developed and nurtured by Catholic thinkers, was also drawn upon and embodied by Protestants of the period of the American Revolution and the earliest days of the Republic, such as John Jay, James Wilson, Thomas Jefferson, James Otis, and John Dickinson. The authors write of many of the founders imbued with the tenets of classical and Christian natural law thinking, believed in a moralistic God of justice who favored the side of liberty, such that the revolutionary actors saw saw themselves carrying out the divine will on the world historic stage in obedience to the dictates of right reason. The emphasis on reason is a key component of natural law thinking of all types, and Cooper and Dyer argue in their book that a re-examination of the writings and belief system of the founding generation shows that far from being religious skeptics bent on creating a new world order that discarded faith in God, many of the founders were in fact motivated in their rebellion against the British by their belief that revolt was called for when their ability to move their society in a moral direction based on the idea of natural rights bestowed by God was being hampered by diktats of the British king and parliament. Natural law thinking was not just in the air in the decades just before, during, and after the revolution, in the first decades after the revolution. Rather, we learn that Cooper, from Cooper and Dyer, that careful analysis of the founding period reveals that ideas central to, America, to the American founding thought are not only compatible with, but presuppose classical natural law and natural theology. Crucially and illuminatingly, the authors show that some of the earliest anti-slavery arguments were influenced heavily by natural law thinking, both sentiment and wording, and the Declaration of Independence shaped the thinking of Lincoln and King and provides common ground for those on the left and the right on questions of equality and justice. They also show that with its emphasis on reason, derived though it is from a divine origin, the natural law tradition can be embraced by those of any faith or not who are eager to foster comedy and rationality in a time of discord and in some respects even societal breakdown. This book is a vigorous counterargument to those on the left who downplay the deeply religious character of the American founding era in order to create a false narrative of a gauzy deism among the founders that would lead to no religion at all. The authors call this the subversive theology thesis, as well as to those on the right, such as a scholar, Patrick Deneen, who argued that the founders were not religious enough and did in fact lay the foundation for the godless state of affairs we are increasingly in, and that the right needs to basically get over the founders and move in the direction of integralism. 
Importantly, this book shows that natural law is not just for Catholics, but played a role in forming the principles that we all live by and need to preserve, a role well understood by non-Catholics such as Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King. Let's hear from one of the two authors of this study, Cody W. Cooper. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope G. Lehman, and I'm one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with one of the two authors of the 2022 book, The Classical and Christian Origins of American Politics, Political Theology, Natural Law, and the American Founding, Cody W. Cooper. Thank you for being so patient, Cody. I, as you can tell, I like the book so much that I, I get a little excited and wordy about it. But and in fact, I want to tell readers that it's not just natural law, but natural law and espionage and treason and Benedict Arnold. And it's it's really a wonderful read. It's not dry at all. It's, it's really very, very moving and exciting in, in many parts of it. So I wanted to make that clear. As we, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, thank you, Hope. And it's a, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Well, wonderful. I'd like to start our interview by asking how you came to write the book with a co-author and why you each felt it was needed. And I'd like to know who approached whom and did you agree on the single aim of the book? This is a long question. <laughs> and how did you divide up the writing? And how did you approach Cambridge University Press with a co-author book on natural law? I don't think and most natural law books are not co-authored unless they're edited essays, collections of essays. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a good question, and it's yeah, I guess it's it's good to start at the beginning if you're going to start somewhere. Um, and so uh, yeah, so Justin Justin Dyer is actually a good friend of mine, and we've uh, we've known each other a, a long time. Um, we we were in graduate school together. We actually know each other all the way back from our childhood. Um, so we it's it's easy to to co-author when you are you know close friends with someone. So that so the actual you know uh, writing of you know feeding off of each other um, you know we, we we would divide up and kind of one person would take a lead on this chapter or that chapter but then we would you know sort of edit each other and that actually part of the process is really easy in terms of how how it began it, it did it really did grow out of uh, of our experience in graduate school and our encounter with um with the american studying the american founding and political philosophy more more generally um and some of the specific schools of thought that we engage with in the book we were introduced to you know around the same time in graduate school and so we were we were thinking about these questions and talking about these questions for for many years before we started writing the book um and so yeah it, it sort of it sort of grew out of both of both a close friendship um, and many conversations over the years about these things, um, and then specifically in graduate school wrestling with some of these questions, um, and then continuing to afterward, you know, at, at, in our academic careers. So yeah, it was um, it, it was it's actually been several years ago since I wrote some of these chapters because these 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 books take uh, you know a long time to, to actually see the light of day, and then there was delays with with you know. COVID, you know, I, I think I, I think that we actually had the book more pretty close to complete when when the pandemic first hit. So it's it's good to see it in print. I'll bet. Well, congratulations. I, I read every word of it. It's wonderful. I wanted to ask you, you I was kind of surprised just, just now that you said that you encountered natural law in graduate school, because my understanding is that it's undertaught and that one of the contributions of your book is is providing a text that is is helpful to students who, who need to grasp the, the basics of it as well. We went to grad, so we went to the University of Texas at Austin, um, and you know that's that is one of the one of the best political theory graduate programs, uh, you know, in, in the country, in, in my view. 
And I think that's it's it's regarded that way because there's a number of political theorists there who are you know very well regarded. Um, you know, one of them one of them being who engaged with in the book, Tom Pangle, who's one of Leo Strauss's you know leading students, and he's a great scholar of history of political thought. And of course, our our mutual mentor Jay Budashevsky is a Thomistic natural law theorist who teaches there, and so. Um, so he's he's attracted a number of students. And so at least at Texas, you know, there's there's an opportunity to be exposed to this tradition and be and whether, you know, and uh, people to, you know, to varying degrees will agree or disagree with it, but it is taken seriously there. Hmm. Yeah, Budajewski is like, am I pronouncing it correctly? He's one of the, the, the major figures of the natural rights movement, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the there really has been a revival in natural law philosophy, um, you know, over the past generation or two, people like John Finnis, Robert George, or mm. leading lights, um, you know, in, in so, so-called new natural law theory. But um, Jay Budashevsky is one of the, I would say, leading natural law theorists who has, you know, been, um, you know, in, is in the same echelon of those kinds of thinkers who are, who has sought, sought to revive uh, natural law thinking for for politics, for ethics, you know, for difficult moral questions, um, and in the area also of of religion. Um, and so, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, how how this this book speaks to you know both the Protestant and Catholic natural law traditions. And Jay Budashevsky's book, written on the heart, back in the '90s, was one of the leading um, books in the, in, in the sort of, uh, from serious Protestant perspectives, recovering natural law theory. Um, and so anyway, um, yeah. Well, I wanted to ask, it's, it's kind of interesting to me that you are, you're, you and Justin Dyer's uh, backgrounds are in government and political science and natural law theory is also covers uh, philosophy as well. And I want to ask you about the title of your book and to ask you to ex expand on it a little bit. You call it political theology. And I wonder, does that put, would, or do you worry that might put off secular minded readers or is it part of the point, part of the point of the book is to, is to identify, is to educate them about the theological mm -hmm. origins of it? No, uh, yeah, that's, that's a good question. And, and political theology itself uh, can be, or is a controversial term for, for a number of reasons, because it can be associated with Carl Schmitt and you know there's a whole thing there which are not necessarily trying to associate it with that but just in in, a, in the broadest sense the idea that 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 political discourse can be informed by theological concepts and vice versa um where is I think what we're trying to get across is that the founders took theology seriously and their their mm -hmm. thoughts their their thoughts about God were were important for how they thought about politics so so in that sense, I think just in the in the very broadest sense of the term, um, where we want to you know to alert readers to the fact that we we take we take the theology of the founding we try to take it seriously or at least you know um, try to understand um, how the founders thought about God and what difference it made for their for their approach to politics. Um, so. Yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but no, it does. That's very helpful. I wonder, sticking with the the uh, theme of theology in the book, you you use the the term nature's God and the God of nature. I wonder if is there a difference between them or hmm. nature's God and the God of nature? Yeah, I mean, I, I so I I would say those 
those would be been used interchangeably by the founders. Um, I, I mean, that that does get to the motivation for writing the book. Uh, I mean, at least my, my co-author, he he really wrestled with um, with this uh, in some of his work, the idea uh, and, and with some of his, you know, coursework and, and mentors, um, this question of, well, is the is the God of nature the same, different than or compatible with the God of Abraham? And that and and that way of 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 asking the question is kind of a, a, way, a way in the book is to say, well, was was the God of nature the sort of philosopher's God that was intended to be a kind of overthrowing of a traditional notion of God as a kind of rational, you know, organizing principle that is sort of identical with the universe, a kind of pantheistic God in, in the vein of someone like Spinoza? Or, or was nature's God um, or the God of nature a providential moralistic creator God that is distinct from creation or, or, or from the universe or from the, the temporal order, um, but, but actively governing it? Um, and so what we argue in the book is that actually it's, it's the latter, that, that, that the God of nature, as the founders understood that being, um, was a providential governor, um, and that that this God, at least in, as you know, as described or and referred to in the Declaration of Independence, is not identical with the God of Abraham or or with or with the the, the Trinitarian God that Christians you know uh, Nicene Christians affirm belief in, but was deeply compatible with that with that God. Um, so that at least so so we argue. Well, you used a term there just a moment ago, the providential God, and I wonder if you could explain that. And I mentioned earlier in the interview about the fact that you mentioned in the book, very excitingly, the the, the capture of the spy John Andre and the and the foiling of Benedict Arnold's treasonous plots. And I wonder, could you explain how that was interpreted? What what is what is a providential God, and why was that interpreted? That episode interpreted that way? Yeah. Well, and so that's a good question. And yeah, there's so one of the chapters of the book um, gets into some of the some of the specific evidence for for the Americans' belief in in a providential God. And because you know, as a, a more skeptical or critical approach to the founding would say, look, these you know, you had these sort of elite uh, intellectual philosophical founders who. Who use sort of this language as a kind of tub to the whale? It's kind of like, oh, we've we've we, we've got to kind of use this sort of language to throw it out to the masses because you know they still adhere to those superstitions, but we know the the the, the truth that you know that that's all it's all nonsense. That you know that perspective I we take seriously, but we think is ultimately wrong. And one of the ways of going about showing we're trying to investigate whether or not it's it's wrong is to is to go back to to Continental Congress and say, okay, they issue these proclamations of Thanksgiving, um, and and they say in these proclamations, we thank kind Providence for its signal interpositions uh, on our behalf. Say, look, God favor is favoring us in the war. Look and hear where are the instances, finding out the counsels of our enemies, raising for us up a powerful ally. And turning the the evil of British cruel, cruelty in the South uh, to the good of our Union, and so I say, okay, you know, where we say in the book, like, okay, let's let's go let's go look at those 
<laughs> let's go look for evidence like and and counterintelligence and spying and 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 diplomacy with France and and the southern campaign and let's see like did did people actually in the moment was this just post hoc rationalization sort of post hoc um you know pious sort of pious um you know reading of of the events or in the midst of the events do people think about it this way and so so to uh, the andre um the plot with with benedict arnold you know there's they they hash this plot to to um you know give west point over to the british and these plans are are foiled by if you know a few american soldiers capture andre and it's interesting you know and in, in in that recounting that specific episode american general nathaniel green he wrote quote um that this was quote the, the most providential train of accidents had led to the capture and so right this is one example of how how in the moment right they they they, they took it as as god is god is governing you know these affairs and it's favoring the american cause um even on the british side uh, the comte de rochambeau um said quote this plainly shows that divine providence is favorable to us and to our cause which i have more than once experienced since the opening of this campaign end quote so you know um I just, it's uh, it's one one of various episodes that we talk about uh and how how the americans and the french um understood themselves it seems to be actors in a, in a greater cosmic drama of sorts um of which you know they they were not they made they were sort of co-authors i i suppose you might say but they but there was a there was an ultimate author of of the events which I think is interesting. Now, whether you, what do you think it's whether it's true is another question. But did they did they did they believe it? I think clearly yes. So the relationship of pro the providential God to natural law is that there is an ultimate decision maker behind our fates, or what is the? I'm not quite clear on the the connection between providentialism and and natural law. Yeah, no, that's 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 a good question. So, so why why would why would natural law require? A providential God. Well, the most the, the most basic answer is that a law needs a lawgiver, and um, and so you know there's there's different ways of of formulating how how God is the author of of natural law. But but the sort of the classical way of going about this is in the very act of creating human beings with reason, um, God and, and God and, and at least in the in the um the narrative of genesis in in making man in god's image there's a kind of of share or, or or ability to share through reason and god's own reason the eternal reason and by and by making human beings as rational animals god makes known promulgates um the eternal law which is to say god's own governing governing plan of the universe um it promulgates a share of knowledge in that um, to human beings, and so by exercising reason, by rightly reasoning, we can grasp, um, you know, basic uh, basic moral precepts, and you know, the sort of classical summary of of those what those precepts are would be more or less what you have in the Ten Commandments: the so duties to one's neighbor um, and uh, duties with regard to one's family and um and duties to god so um and a court and and you know and in the american founding um there was more of an emphasis on natural rights 
But I think one of the things that we try to talk about in the book is, you know, it's a mistake to, to think that, that the founders wanted to overthrow the idea of natural duties. Um, quite the opposite, actually. They, they thought that natural rights were a function of, of, of prior duties or obligations. So to say that, to say that you have a natural right to life is the correlative of, of, the, of the duty that others have not to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say in, 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 your, in your book that you're, you make clear that, that James Wilson's, speaking of law, his lectures on law, that they've just been almost willfully misinterpreted by people who are just determined to strip the founding era of, of, its, of its debt to natural law. I wonder if you could discuss Wilson's lectures, why they're important and how they've been apparently very much distorted by by people both on the left and the right. I was fascinated by that. Could you talk about his, that you have an entire chapter in Wilson. I wonder if you could discuss that. Yeah. So James Wilson is, you know, uh, I think that he's, he's getting more of a renaissance, but he's, you know, kind of, he, he he's in some ways a kind of a, a forgotten founder, or at least, at least has been, um, you know, but he, he shouldn't be because he, he signed, he's only, you know, there's only six people who signed both the declaration and the constitution. Uh, Wilson was, um, you know, he was an important figure at the constitutional, con the constitutional convention. Um, he was one of Madison's closest, you know, collaborators. Um, and, you know, he also served uh, on the Supreme Court and he, uh, as an associate justice, um, he was invited by the College of Philadelphia to present a series of lectures. Um, and, you know, the audience for that, for one of his first lectures included President Washington and a number of leading statesmen. So these lectures were, were important. Um, and he and he really wanted to kind of he kind of wanted to cre create his he wanted to sort of be the American Blackstone and have this would be this would be the sort of commentaries um, on the law. Well, anyway, in in that in his lectures, he he lays out a a natural a sort of architecture of of law that looks deeply traditional. Um, you could tell he has he was influenced by the great. Anglican um, natural law thinker Richard Hooker, um, who himself was was pretty pretty deeply influenced by Thomas Aquinas, um, and so in those lectures he he lays out a theistic natural law theory um, as the the ground the the metaphysical foundation of just law um, that looks you know pretty pretty in deep in deep continuity with with the tradition. Um, and so, yeah, we make the case that at least some some folks who have read Wilson to be, you know, more of a skeptical thinker, you know, um, are, you know, are incorrect to suggest that he is, you know, in any way subversive. Um, actually, um, his his account has a has a lot. It, it looks like it's um, in continuity with that classical Christian law tradition. Um, and of course, he was influenced by, um, you know. Scottish, uh, you know, sort of the Scottish moral realists. But I think, I mean, we would, I, 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 we will spend a lot of time on this, but people like Thomas Reed, these kinds of folks, I think that they are, they're, they're rediscovering um, principles about, about conscience and objective morality that, um, that were sort of already there in the, in the natural law tradition, but sort of describing it and using a bit different language, but essentially getting at the same, the same ideas. Well, I think that it's, it's interesting, too, that, that Richard Hooker at that point would have, 
he was a Protestant thinker, correct? Yeah. So I, I think that one of the real values of your book is making clear of the Protestant tradition, because as, as a non-Catholic, I was sort of saying, yay, you know, <laughs> throughout <laughs> yeah. the book, because it because it's also it's also it's interesting from a Protestant point of view and also just showing that that natural law encompasses many thinkers of many of many different of different many different eras. For sure. Uh, yeah. And that's that's a that is an important point of the book is that that this natural law philosophy was was something that was a tradition shared um, by both, you know, Roman Catholic and Protestant founders and, and thinkers. And so there's not a lot of Catholics at the founding, but there, you know, there are, there's the Carroll family, they're there. And, you know, it's an important contribution um, to the founding as explicitly, as it were, explicit confessing Catholics but um, but yeah, yes. Michael, Michael, I interviewed Michael Breidenbach about his book about the carols, and it's real. That really was fascinating, and it, it it makes a nice companion to your book because you could read them almost in tandem about the, the, what the Catholics were doing and, and their their particular difficulties at the time. But yeah, yeah, yeah Michael's a friend, and and that's you know, his his work on this is great, and that's uh, that I would definitely um, recommend to to listeners to check out his work, um, and yeah, so um, you know. Uh, but yeah, on the Protestant side, I mean, books like Stephen Grable's Rediscovering Natural Law and Reformed, the Reformed Tradition is a really important um, book. And there's been a, there's a number of scholars now um, who are kind of working in the, the revival of, of Protestant, uh, Protestant natural law thinking for politics and ethics and religion. Um, people like Michael Watson, Justin Dyer, my co-author. Um, uh, you know, Daryl Charles, um, Matthew Wright. There's a, there's a number of folks there who, who are writing and thinking about this stuff and, um, and who are doing really, really interesting work. And I think that a lot of, I think for contemporary Protestants, there, there's a lot of debt to C.S. Lewis, um, who I would say is probably the, the most important 20th century, um, Protestant natural law thinker. Um, and of course, you know, his, his book, Mere Christianity, um, it begins by talking about this idea of there's, there's some, there's some law of behavior that is, that you assume when you, when you, in any moral thinking or serious moral engagement, um, and which indeed the, the gospel message presupposes, um, and, and actually my, my colleague, uh, and, and co-author, um, Justin Dyer has written in, in another place um, in, a, in a book on C.S. Lewis uh, um, about how Lewis was um, he he was engaged in a, a kind of intellectual uh, battle with Karl Barth, um, the great theologian um, who sort of really attacked um, natural law thinking and natural theology as unbiblical in a kind of pietistic vein and. And he was in, in bar. What, what kind of, what was that word you used? I, dietistic? Pietistic, yeah. Oh, pietistic, I see. Yeah, pietism. So the, you know, and I think that he, his his motive was was good to try to, Bart was trying to rescue, you know, trying to rescue German Christianity and, and European Christianity from Nazism and trying to, you know, prize it back apart from, get the Bible away from, you know, the, the swastika. I mean, okay, that's good. But he he because he tended, I think that he he tended to associate natural theology and natural law reasoning with liberal Protestantism and, and Catholicism. And and but actually, 
you know, Calvin himself appeals to natural theology and natural law, and you can find it in the in the magisterial reform thinkers. Um, you know, uh, but there, but there is this, you know, there is this vein in Calvin which strongly emphasizes human depravity, and as it were, the noetic effect, the noetic effects of sin. So there's, you know, I guess there's there's a worry among among some Protestants that that you know you're going to uh, overemphasize what human beings can know by unaided reason um, if you if you go down the path of natural law thinking. But you know, I think it's. My my view is that that's that's a mistake. Um, you know Romans Romans two, um, I think Romans two fourteen through fifteen, ta- I think, think pretty clearly indicates that that the law written on the heart um, is put in there by God. <laughs> now that doesn't mean that you're going to be able to, from a from a classical as it were Orthodox Christian perspective, live up to it <laughs> without help. Right, right, and you, you need grace from a Christian perspective to to be able to 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 live up to the demands of the moral law, um, and it also doesn't you know, to affirm that he, that the natural law is knowable by unaided reason doesn't mean that it's going to be, as it were, known completely and without error um, across all times and places. Um, that's not the claim either, um, and indeed. Right. This is part of the reason why someone like Thomas Aquinas uh, is going to say it's in, it's entirely fitting um, that God would reveal the Ten Commandments, because right, even even the ancient right Hebrews in relationship with God could could, could get things wrong. <laughs> so um, so let, let's let's clarify here um, what in principle is noble by reason. Um, so anyway, but that that. Um, that's a little bit of a, of a of a rabbit trail about Protestantism and natural law, but this book, to to that conversation, contributes to say, well, you know, people like James Wilson, yeah, he's he's a devout Protestant thing, you know, and people like John Jay and some of these guys, they they're examples of Protestant natural warriors. Um, so so the recovery of within Protestantism, if there's an interest in in um, in recovering natural law, the one place to start is a founder like James Wilson. And yeah, speaking of Jay, you, you you write very movingly about him, as well as Silas Dean, who is an interesting figure, and he was very much treated rather shabbily by Congress and, and his political opponents, and you, you make clear in, in the book about how he was particularly felt that he had a mission that, that was that he was it was a, a, a God-given mission, not just not just a patriotic mission. Yeah, uh, and Dean definitely is one of the, I would say. To much more than Wilson, one of the forgotten founders. Um, he was a Yale graduate and a sort of lawyer turned successful merchant in Connecticut. And he had, you know, been a delegate to the First and Second Continental Congresses. Um, but he, there was some, you know, he had some political rivalries and, and a little bit of falling out with some of his allies, but he eventually gets appointed as one of the ministers to France. And he was really important in, um, nego- in, in you know, negotiating an alliance and trying to raise. They, 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 we, need, we need guns, you know. We, we need ammo. We need ammo, um, and we need we need that navy. Um, and and he was instrumental in in helping bring about that alliance alongside um, Benjamin Franklin. Um, and but yeah, he he seems to, and we give evidence. Um, to the effect that 
he see himself as an instrument of providence um, and frames uh, along with his his um, his colleagues in France frames the events in providentialistic terms um, uh, that God has you know brought together France and America in this moment. Um, and yeah, I think it's I think it's an interesting um, example of of uh, further gives further evidence um, for for the the claim of the book that that the the founders um, thinking about politics and, and practical approach to politics was informed by by a deep belief that that the universe was governed by a providential god. Well, I was going to say um, among the the interesting figures in your book that in that episode with Silas Dean is is the rather louche Frenchman Beaumarchais, and I thought, well, yeah. what? I was <laughs> well, that's kind of an interesting sort of um, pop, figure to pop up here, but that that was quite interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, speaking speaking of figures that I did not expect in the book was uh, uh, Orestes Brownson, who lived from eight, he was of a later generation from eighteen oh three to eighteen seventy six. I wonder if you could discuss him a little bit. And and it, what was interesting to me was that he's an interesting interesting mix. He was a, a originally a Protestant, was a Unitarian actually, and then became a Catholic. And so he's kind of, he's a rather interesting figure. Could you discuss his idea, especially, again, he, he discusses the providential constitution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you know, also I wanted to ask, I forgot to ask, and what is his ideas about secondary sovereignty? Mm, yeah. So, yeah. So uh, Brownson, we, we talk about in one of the chapters that tries to sort of reread re um, the, the idea, or try to um, rethink through what, what the, the founders, the founding political philosophy uh, had to say about sovereignty and the idea of popular sovereignty. Um, and, you know, the constitution begins, you know, we the people, um, and the idea is that, well, the, the people are, as it were, in charge here, and they are ordaining um, and establishing a constitution, and its authority derives from, from the people's will. But is it, is it mere will, um, as it were, a voluntaristic idea that it's just the fact that um, most, the, the, the most powerful group says so? Or is... Or, uh, as a voluntarist might say, or is there, as it were, oh, a more could, I, could I interrupt you for a moment? And ask yeah. what is what is volunteerism? Yeah, so volunteerism is volunteerism. is a it's a school of of thinking that that uh, from just from the term itself, voluntas, meaning will, it makes raises the will up to be the 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 ur principle of of morality, politics, uh, religion. And it and it and its and its roots are in a um, are in a, a particular kind of voluntaristic theology, um, and you can make the case that that this that that this way of thinking um, gains gains some steam um, from uh, elements of the Reformation. Uh, again, not not I wouldn't say the entire Reformation, but but someone like Luther at times emphasizes. Um, God's will above all things, and um, but there was there were earlier voluntarist anomalous people like William of Ockham and others who were worried if you if you start talking about God's reason and 
um, and as it were, the divine ideas in God's mind um, that that were that were somehow um, you know, they, these these could be somehow limiting in God's will. You restrain God's freedom if you start talking about um, you know the limits to God's will and virtue of His goodness or His nature. And so, someone like like Occam, and at least arguably later people like Luther, were worried that um, you know if you if you start talking about God in this way, or you you emphasize that too much, you're gonna you're gonna you know hamstring, you're gonna bootstrap God. God won't be really free to to do what God wants. Um, and in that that way of thinking, sort of starts bleeding more and more down into politics. Um, that 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 the source of of morality of politics is not reason but it's will um and anyway the the natural law of tradition the classical natural law tradition has you know an accompanying tradition of theology that um holds that god's will is is not in opposition to but is identical with his his own goodness and his own nature and um and god you know, it, it, God's freedom is not, as it were, violated or or eliminated by by saying that in choosing to create the order that God, in fact, created, God binds himself to that order freely. God doesn't have to create, but having chosen to create, he creates an order that he binds himself to. And, and that's important because natural law assume the natural law philosophy assumes that there is an order in nature that is sort of regular that we can discern by reason and that you know um you know if i when i when i get out of bed and step into my shoes right i i'm not going to just float <laughs> i'm going to float into space right this it's not just moral laws but it's also um laws of gravity those sorts of things these things are st stable in nature um and and the ontological ground of that is is God's own creation. Um, so anyway, so vol so voluntarism, you know, um, I don't know if that's a helpful, helpful description of it, but I think that the, the the founders reject that idea in theology and in politics, um, and therefore the idea of sovereignty um, is not, as it were, a an uh, as a, an unmitigated or um, a kind of unbounded will mm. but it is it is a capacity to choose that is bounded by by the moral law that's known by reason and so we the people um act with authority um on when they when they are within those sort of parameters and well, I even I even have a quote from the book that is just what I just just what we're looking for. <laughs> I mean, just 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 what I'm what I was what I underlined when I was reading the book. Uh, the founders under you write the founders' understanding of popular sovereignty as limited and conditioned by a pre-existing natural law. I was interested that they say yes, we 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 as as patriots we want to direct the destiny of our country, but we are controlled also by certain parameters that we have to obey is that correct or yeah yeah and so and so that that's why we when we get into brownson he brownson really writes one of the one of the better reads of of you know of the sort of next generation after the founders have died um interpreting our constitutional order and he sees he sees that this is this is a a, a constitutional order that's under god 
and that that um, sees human beings as secondary causes, by which is meant we are we are causes within a, a created order that are that are as it were dependent dependent upon a first cause, and that and that conditions limits. Um, uh, it, it empowers, but it also conditions limits. It's the it's it wants the empowering and and limiting condition for human beings to exercise legitimate freedom to to form their a constitution that shall, as the, as the Declaration of Independence says, seem to them most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Well, one of the one of the fascinating things in the book too is that you make the point that the the patriots would use would appeal to law and when they're in their fight with the British Parliament and the and the king and their their edicts and things that they thought were unjust as colonists that they would they would refer to uh rights and legal 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 issues and political issues and, and precedent but then if that didn't work then their default was to refer to natural law and, and a, at a deeper level of, of injustice and I wondered how did the British politicians react? Did they ever try to counter with their own natural law arguments or did they just engage in, in, le in legal arguments and just ignore or were they confounded or perplexed or did they find <laughs> did they find that the the uh, the colonist arguments specious self-serving and self-righteous? Did they just mm -hmm. kind of roll their eyes and say oh not the natural rights thing again oh goodness yeah. me. Yeah, no that's a good question and so we one of the one of the chapters of the book gets into the pamphlet debates and 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 this is you know the place to to look for how how do the British respond because this is this is the great transatlantic debate between 1764 and 1776 um, that's you know initially triggered by uh, well following the Seven Years War you know a lot of debt um, you know there's <laughs> national mm -hmm. debt's been a been a, a salient political issue for <laughs> for a long time um, and in, in, the, in the British case they they racked up a big debt and they need to raise some money. So they pass the Stamp Act. Well, you know, raising taxes in this in this way looked like it was in, in, internally on the colonies without without some form of consent, looked like it was something new. And and so you know. well, one, of, one of the things that you make in the in the a point in the book that's also fascinating is that uh you make you make clear that by modern standards, the taxes that the British were imposing were not that onerous and were not. That yeah. really unjust. It's just that they were novel, I guess, and the the, the colonists didn't like like the fact that there was suddenly taxes. Yeah, no, I um, I I spent some time. <laughs> that's so. That's from the one thing I spent quite a bit of time on is is trying to find the best research that that could tether um, you know uh, money at the at the value of money at the founding um, and how it would how it would translate to today. And some of some of that work is hard to have to, to nail down with with great precision, but but yeah, the best the best that we can estimate, it it doesn't look like the onerousness of the of you know of the of requiring you know a, a certain kind of piece of paper to get married um, is that radically different from having to get a marriage license today. Say mm. it was what it wasn't, and, and to use natural law sort of framing it wasn't a an injustice ex forma in the sense that it was overburdening part of the population with it with uh, with a, a ridiculous amount of taxes in fact the americans were doing fairly compared at the, at that time in, in you know on a, on a world scale uh the standard of living was actually relatively decent for your um for your average free person um but it 
um, it, but what was what was different was distinctive was that there there wasn't a form of consent through their local legislature and they didn't have representation uh, in parliament and well, so an another and i'm going to interrupt you to tell you how wonderful your book was again because another wonderful point you make in the book on that point was that they were demanding representation that were not granted to people in the british isles even though that was obviously unjust, but but it was they were demanding we want more representation than the British would say would grant say someone yeah. in London or Yorkshire or Dorset or yeah. Hampshire at the time. It's sure. a, and that and that was one of the that was one of the sort of British pamphleteer arguments back is say oh you you know these upstarts want <laughs> they they want something that that I mean, it's not until well into the nineteenth century that you have uh, in British the, the sort of you know uh, the expanding the expanding of the franchise uh these old rotten boroughs where we were totally disproportionate mm. um of, of reform there so yes and um you know so the the british have some they have some powerful arguments back at the americans and that's and that chapter tries to go through and and wrestle with the arguments that the, the americans were making and and yeah so they they appeal both to the british constitution and they also appeal to natural justice and you know um part of part of that of the challenge here is well you know were they just kind of throwing everything at the wall um and whatever would stick you know uh, <laughs> or did they did they really believe in the the appeals to to natural right um and i and i again you you could uh i i you can make the case that there that that natural law rhetoric has has a useful purpose but that uh, but i i've always i've never i've never seen the point that just because something is useful doesn't mean they couldn't also be true or believe mm. me um and so <clears throat> yeah i think that i think that they I, I think that they appealed to both constitutional legal arguments and natural law arguments because they saw those those legal principles as de as ultimately grounded in the moral principles, and you know, and, th and that makes sense. It would make sense that you would appeal to both if you thought that that the that one was grounded in the other. Hmm. Well, I was going to say it's interesting in your book too that you say that um, the Magna Carta and issued in 2015 and other milestones even though they the as you say they threw every kid against the wall and they would use legalistic arguments when they wanted to when they needed to and they but when they weren't working again they didn't they they would default again to natural law but i wanted to read one passage from your book that's yeah. kind of an interesting bold claim for the book and i think it kind of encapsulates it you say over and against the uh, the notion that sovereign power stands above the law, the American founders embraced the idea that those who exercise political authority should be ruled by law. These arguments were embedded in a theological context and are only and are fully comprehensible only in the light of the persistent influence of the classical Christian natural law as emphasis on the rule in the on the rule of law in theology and politics. And I think that's very interesting. And I wonder if you could defend that, say, to a, a modern American secularist who says, wait a minute, I don't I don't buy this, that if you say our nation is founded in theology, I'm not I'm not on board with that. Or, yeah. or how, do, how does that affect us today? And 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 why would you argue for the value of that? I mean, how how yeah. how does that enrich our, our lives as citizens? Yeah, that's good. Um, why? So why would it matter to to um, to the. The groundwork to the foundation of the rule of law um, to think 
about theology in a certain way or think that that God exists. Well, the founders in 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 during in the very pamphlet debates um, appealed to a certain understanding of God um, to to oppose the idea of absolutism. So, and, and I think that's that's how I would defend it is to say what why should government what is what is wrong with absolutist government or a government that uh, can do all things um well if you think that that if you think limited government is valuable um then the question is well why have limited government what's what's the reason for it and for the founders it was because well um the government is under god and there is there is a there is a set of guaranteed rights that are, are are based in the creator that government can't violate and and that government is are the very ground of government's authority and provides the reason for government's existence <laughs> so um so if americans i i i think still today are a liberty loving people indeed there is a presidential campaign just launched by one of the major political parties in which the contender for that party has made it his his the the, the groundwork of his campaign is defending freedom defending liberty okay that's that sounds good um but where does that freedom come from is it a gift of government because if it's a gift of government then that same government can take it away or is it that it it, it precedes government that it's that that it, it is as it were uh, prior, it's ontologically prior to government itself that that human the human beings are in virtue of their dignity as rational creatures um, created by God do certain things, um, and so um, the founders believed that 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 the Creator uh, um, you know endows us with natural rights. And this provided the 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 backstop, the the ground of argument and appeal to say, look, Parliament, you guys can't claim sovereignty to bind us in quote all cases whatsoever, which they said in the Declaratory Act. That looks like an absolutist, unlimited government, mm. and that is contrary to our to an understanding, a, a, a proper understanding of 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 God's relationship to human beings. God guarantees certain fundamental natural rights. And, and that provides the very basis of, and God also rules the universe through these, these, these discernible laws in, in a rational way. And that provides an archetype for, for governance, which is to say, um, a, a government founded upon stable rule of law, reason, respect for rights, and not arbitrary will, not arbitrary power, um, just to just to do whatever. And that's, again, that's a voluntaristic notion of God. But that being false in theology, according to the founders, it should also be false in, in politics. And they they took the, the, the British argument to be a kind of a kind of uh, apology for arbitrary absolutism um and despotism which they said which they argued would make us into slaves and they use that they use that powerful language today that it's almost jarring to us knowing that that the, the founding generation failed ultimately to make good on um the promise of natural rights for everyone regardless of of skin color but the but but their own principles are what 
condemns that failure. Um, it wasn't a problem with the principles in themselves. It was it was a problem in their in their application. Um, it, and but they themselves recognized that arbitrary rule over over persons apart from their consent, apart from their consent, not respecting their natural rights, is tyranny, is absolutism. Um, and then that's an offense to God um, to, to treat people that way. And so to, to a, a secularist today, you know, who if, if, if a secular sort of minded person today were to say, uh, oh, I value freedom, you know, I value limited government, then the question is, well, why? And what's the reason why government can't cross a certain line is it just because the majority says so well watch out because tomorrow the majority might have a different idea well the spe speaking now that we're on the the subject of absolutism and tyranny and despotism you talk about uh, um thomas hobbes and i wonder if you could talk about throughout the book you talk about him and could you just explain to us as a as a reader i was a little bit I was having trouble, and that's not your fault. It's it's my own poor background in philosophy. But could you talk about the terms Hobbesian versus Hobbist? Yes. <laughs> well, there that is. Um, there's there is a bit more of a backstory to that, which is. Yeah, you have an entire book on Hobbes. I know. <laughs> yes, I've, I've written a book on Hobbes, and I stake out an interpretation of Hobbes that, shall we say, is. Um, not the majority interpretation. It's a it's a it's a minority view on Hobbes. It's not it's not a standard view of Hobbes, um, and so um, so I my own view is that Hobbes actually has more in continuity with this classical natural law tradition than is often thought. But there is there is a way of reading Hobbes that is prominent throughout throughout history, including the way our founders thought about Hobbes, that we call Hobbist or Hobbist philosophy, which, um, which basically holds that, um, that the, 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 the foundations of morality, politics is all will. It's a, it's a kind of voluntaristic idea um, that, you know, if you imagine a state of nature, a condition where there's no law, there's no government, um, in that condition, uh, Hobbes, suggests, and you can read Hobbes this way in a Hobbist way, um, would just be void of all of all moral principles. Um, you know, Hobbes says it'd be in that condition, it would be a, a bellum omnia contra omnis, right? The, the war of all against all. <laughs> um, you would do whatever you could to survive and you would do it with right. Um, so it would be a pretty nasty, pretty nasty place. But ha ha and Hobbes says that's bad. You know, we got to get out of that situation. So we basically create government. We create justice. We 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 decide to come together, give up that radical freedom, and create law and government for the sake of safety. Um, well, uh, someone like Alexander Hamilton, you know, would have he read the British thinkers to be deeply Hobbist in the sense that he thought that that well, he says. Um, he, he thinks Hobbes was an atheist and that Hobbism was a kind of atheistic philosophy where there's no God, there's no morality and fundamentally at root, we just make it all up and it's all a product of will. And, and uh, so Hobb, Hobbism is a set of doctrines that is more or less what we've been talking about of voluntarism. Um, and, and the way that the founders understood uh, Hobbes's philosophy is uh, we we set up as as a kind of foil um, 
because they attacked it themselves and and it was a set of ideas that that they fundamentally rejected um hobbesian would be shall we say that would be a term that could be broader and, and encompass other possible interpretations of hobbes um <laughs> but hobbist at least as we use use the the term is is a more specific set of of notions associated with voluntarism subjectivism you know that that kind of stuff um but at least we leave the door open in this book because we're the, the book's not really about Hobbes himself, but we leave the door the door open that there could be other ways of reading Hobbes himself, but the book doesn't stand or fall on whether or not my previous work on Hobbes got it right. I could be I could be wrong about that, and this book could still stand on its on its own. It's you know that's my what I've argued about Hobbes is how we say probably more controversial and and harder for some to to swallow, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> Well, at this point, I just want to remind leader, listeners that we are talking today with Cody W. Cooper, one of the two authors of the of, with Justin Buckley Dyer of the 2022 book, The Classical and Christian Origins of American Politics, Political Theology, Natural Law, and the American Founding. And since we've been discussing various figures that are in the book, and we and there are so many of them that's just really fascinating and, and, and new new takes on them. I didn't I didn't know. Uh, I didn't, I always regarded as Arrestus Brownson as a bit of a crank, but he wasn't at all. <laughs> I mean, he's a person of some substance and, and, and that I didn't realize. Could you tell us a little bit about James Otis and John Dickinson? Yeah. Yeah. So um, Otis and Dickinson, we talk about them in the context of the pamphlet debates. And again, I would say, James, so, you know, one of, one of the things about this book is we, you know, where we are taught, we talk about some of like the the most remembered founders. I have a whole chapter on Thomas Jefferson. You know, he's one of the one of the most famous remembered founders. And uh, and again, James Wilson is one of the most influential, but he's a little little less little less known, popular, I would say. But he he is definitely had a revival in scholarship. But then there's a, these these thinkers like Otis and Dickinson, who I would say are are first rate in uh, intellects and were very important, but which ha, you know. Um, are not as not discussed as much some you know more on the forgotten side um but otis was um thought by john adams to be a very important um you know person and yeah you know, in the book you made that's another very dramatic that was something that was very new to me and it was very interesting that adams just said he was that was the crucial point that was a pivotal point that he that he thought that otis's work work, work was just absolutely uh, without with the, the revolution began with him i thought that was yes. really yeah because you have the you have these uh these cases where the british are trying um in massachusetts to the, you know they're, they're trying to stop smuggling you know and so you can you can understand <laughs> british perspective and that but um you know they 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 start trying to uh engage in searches and seizures in a way that didn't look like it was it was um, respecting the, the 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 common law rights that the the the, um, the colonists believe that they they enjoyed, um, and so he he was he he railed against against this. Um, and Adams thinks that this is kind of the this is kind of the one of the initial moments of the the spark of the revolution is is ignited. Um, but yeah, he writes one of the one of these really important one of the first. And, and uh, most well-known early pamphlets, the rights of the, of the British colonies asserted and proved. And Otis there, he lays out 
I think. I uh, love that title. They're not shy about saying right in the title. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. You know, it was <laughs> when you when you get when you get when you get steeped in this literature. Um, you know, it's like wow. We've. Uh, I don't. I'm not sure that we're we're. <laughs> I'm not sure our standards of literacy have, have gone up since the founding these days. Um, we, we've definitely lost something. But um, uh, and indeed, when, when only one in, one in three children by the fourth grade um, have proficiency in, in reading, it's not, not good. Mm -hmm. But any, at any rate, um, so Otis, he, um, he lays out, I think, a, a deeply Thomistic um, classical natural law perspective um, in his, as a kind of assumed, kind of assumed um, first principles um, that he, he sheds light on um, in that pamphlet. And so we talk about that and, um, you know, we talk about how um, Otis continues to, to make an argument for you know, make an argument against um, what the what the British are doing and taxation. Excuse me. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, Otis he doesn't he doesn't live too much longer. He he you know he dies uh, not too long at, um, after this initial episode. But it would have been really interesting to see the contributions he would have made if you know if he had lived on to the Declaration and the Constitution. Um, but yeah, he makes a really important contribution to. Um, founding political thought in his in, in his pamphlet, um, John Dickinson, um, you know, again one of these underrated found founders. He was a lawyer from 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 Pennsylvania. Um, he writes um, a series of pamphlets that were that that were widely read, and in those pamphlets we argue that some of the, some of the same themes we've been talking about that. Um, a, a notion of, of God as creator and author of nature shines through, um, and the idea that that such a being is the source of natural rights and, and particularly the natural right of property, um, um, is is sourced in this um, this kind of creator God, um, and indeed um, specifically Christian natural law tradition shines through in Dickinson's writings, um, and he talks about um, how you know Christian virtues and grace uh, is compatible with and reinforces um, the uh, the the precepts of natural law and and helps us to live them out and um, so so Dickinson you know um, is, a, is another important figure that that I think provides more evidence for for our thesis um, yeah, I could say more in more detail about any of that, but you know, I think the property point is is one we haven't really gotten to yet. And you know, indeed, the uh, you could say about the about the founders, like, oh, well, this is you're, you're going to fight a revolution because you know because you, you you had to pay a little taxes and you're you're that selfish. Well, um, you know, that's that kind of reading of the founding is is deeply mistaken. The way that the way that the founders understood property was was it was in service of of uh, and, and Dickinson, people like Dickinson notice talk about this. It's in service of leaving, leading a virtuous and fulfilling life. Mm -hmm. It's in service of providing for your family and your community. Um, and, pro and it's also essential to, to lead, leading a, a dignified life that's independent. That's not, that's, that's not, you know, dependent upon government from cradle to grave for all things. Um, and so, 
from from Dickinson to Otis to Thomas Jefferson, they all agreed that that uh, property was an essential right, but it wasn't this sort of acquisitive, uh, atomistic, you know, I'm going to go out and get rich and lord it over everyone else. Um, that's a kind of corruption. Uh, that's a kind of it's kind of corruption of capitalism, I think, or they, I think I think they would think. Um, well, you say in, you say in the book very movingly that Washington and others of the founding fathers would quote the biblical line of uh, quotation about and he shall not be afraid mm -hmm. that, that people are, are, are part of what, as, as you say, their argument was we just want to live a peaceful life without being tyrannized or, or uh, oppressed and, and interfered yeah. with. And this that is Micah, the, that's Micah 4.4, um, mm -hmm. you know, that that they should sit every man under his vine under his fig tree and none should make them afraid. And the, found, the founders, the founders loved the Bible. <laughs> they, they loved, they loved finding in the Bible. And again, there's, there's this, there's a kind of skeptical, uh, cynical way of reading this. You're like, oh, you're just going to mine it to find, you know, uh, evidence for your Republican theory to, you know, to be a rebel. Um, okay. Maybe, but, but I think that they actually went and read it and, and found support for, for republicanism and natural rights um in the bible and and believe that it sincerely was there i mean and there is this is one of those examples where where there's this kind of ideal of 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 a kind of leading a quiet life um and and um being able to pursue one's happiness and lawful uh in a lawful way and lawful professions and have a family and raise a family and participate in one's community and go to church, right? All the, the things that are decried later as sort of bourgeois uh, unfulfilling mm. actually turn out to be the, the very things that might actually lead, lead to a fulfilling life. And the precondition of it is that you, you've got to have rule of law that respects uh, property rights. Um, and so um, they found in the Bible that 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 idea being lauded and um, and thought that that what they were doing in America was deeply compatible with these with these kind of sort of uh, aspirations or, or ideals laid out in the Bible. And you, you make the point when you quote some of Silas Dean's letters to his wife that he that he embodies that, that he felt that he wanted to be at home with his with his family and not be going off on a dangerous trip to France. But he, but he felt that, he, again, he was directed by by God yeah. to to and to and to ensure that they would be able to have that peaceful life. And you mentioned Jefferson and I, I blew it in the interview because I did not allow enough time. And I know I have to let you go. But uh, I just want to say to readers that listeners that their uh, chapter on Jefferson is really fascinating because I don't I was kind of surprised because I don't usually regard him as a natural law man particularly and so that 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 is a very provocative and fascinating chapter that it, it's it's a reevaluation of him is that correct but that, that, yeah. that it, you know pretty innovative look at him in terms of natural law yeah yeah no i think that is it is a, it is one of the more provocative chapters to because because jefferson is widely regarded as more of this sort of the more skeptical deistic um type thinkers and we make the case that that you know he has a providentialist understanding of God and that he believes in uh, a set of natural law principles accessible through conscience. And, you know, um, Je Jefferson was definitely an enigmatic and eclectic thinker. So, you know, you can, you can sometimes find evidence for, for multiple propositions on, on multiple sides of a question in Jefferson. Um, and he didn't really systematize his thought. 
but I don't think that that necessarily means that he doesn't have a view that is internally coherent, but you, it does require some more investigation. And among, among all the founders, Jefferson is probably the one that I know the best personally. Um, and I, as I've read through so many thousands of, of pages of, of his letters and stuff, and I still haven't gotten through all of it. There's a lot, he wrote 20,000 letters or more. So, um, but um, having, having mined through so much of, so much of Jefferson, I feel pretty confident about the argument of that chapter um, to to stand on its own. And indeed, for my next, I I I, I am I have a project in mind that could that's be the perfect because the, because the traditional question, the final question on the New Books Network is, what are you working on now? So you're just in perfect timing for that <laughs> yeah. question. Yeah, well, I have um, I have been thinking about Jefferson, and I have I have an idea for for something on on Jefferson's thought. So that it, it, that's a, definitely a potential uh, thing going forward. And I've also I've also been thinking more about the idea of idolatry um, and how it could be a an interesting analytical tool for 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 political thought and and in analyzing politics. And I've been thinking more about about that how it, how it could look in even assessing politics today as a as an important concept. So I, I haven't really written much on that yet. Uh, you, do, you I, mean, I, do you mean idolatry in terms of artwork or 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 I mean worship it, or I mean it as a as as a how do I put it? So let me let me back up for a second and like to try to explain a little more. But part of the the classical natural law tradition, particularly in someone like Thomas Aquinas's thought, is the idea that a human being who is any, any person who is you know, leading a life with their the faculties of, of intellect and will um, are go is going to um, have something in their lives that they take as a highest good. Mm. They're going to order their lives upon some some plan of life that, whether explicitly or implicitly, holds adheres to some some good something that that they that is architectonic to their life what is that thing mm. well in you know in classical christian theology um i would say you know judeo-christian theology um if that thing is not god it's some it's some kind of an idol <laughs> mm. um and so idolatry is not just bowing down for the golden calf anything any any created good can become an idol if it become if it becomes the architectonic thing in one's life uh, at least according to the the sort of classical christian tradition and so if that's true or whether 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 or not it's true i guess you could even set the truth value aside but but i i think that that idea could be an interesting tool to to take to politics when does political ideology become a, a form of idolatry whether it is um idolatry of a certain idea of, of the state itself or of uh of, of, of human beings or but this case gen gender ideology is becoming a bit of a an an idolat form of idolatry. <laughs> well, I mean, that's and there's there could be a case to be made there too. Um, so, 
you know, it could it could explain a lot of things. Um, so anyway, I, I haven't thought it through all the way yet, but I don't know if that answers your question about defining idolatry. It's 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 making it's making anything other than God the highest thing is one way to just define it easily in, in one's life. Um, and part of what this entails is trying to define what religion is, because it seems to me that that religion is. Um, uh, it seems to me that if that if you define religion in a functionalist way, which is to say that which serves in your life as an ordering principle, then it's not whether religion, it's which religion. Mm. Um, and which is to say, there is, it, it, I, I'm skeptical of the idea that you can cordon off some sphere of life to call it this, the secular or something like this, that is just somehow, somehow non-religious. Um, I, I, I'm, I suspect that religion could be a plenary um, concept and experience. And that's, it's variegated, but it's, it has all sorts of different expressions of it. And, and this is why I think religious freedom is, is, is a very important value. But I, 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 am, I wonder if, um, and I don't, I don't know if I've yet been able to prove, but I, I suspect that um, secularism and, and its various offshoots are themselves forms of religion. Absolutely. That's what Robert George argues, that it has its own, it has its own saints, its own holidays, its own rituals, its own, its own, its own, its own devils and, and, and its own, its own form of, of, of um, infidelity. <laughs> right, it's own, and its own priest class and, and, and with, with authority to excommunicate heretics, et cetera. Yeah, no, I think I think Robbie's probably right about that. Um, but I, I, I do think that it 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 is at least to my to my own mind still under theorized of uh, in of in terms of proving it to be the case. Um, and there's there is interesting work being done on this, but it's an area I'm, I'm getting more interested in. So, yeah. Um, but I would just and one other thing I just wanted to go back to for a second that you mentioned before was about about family and. Um, and Silas Dean and what came to mind was, um, I don't know if I talk about this in the book, but there's a, there's a beautiful exchange of letters between John Adams and Abigail Adams, um, where Abigail says, you know, cause she's, she's pining for, for Adams to come home. She's a minister mm. in England and she's, she's, she's running, she's running their, their homestead back there mm. and trying to, trying to keep it, the family together. And, in and, wartime. In wartime. Right. <laughs> and, and she says, you know, um, what what is politics but ultimately a kind of a form of fame and what and, and is fame not as vain as the weathercock mm. you know it, it it blows in the wind she says you know let us let us go buy a little cottage and retire and and go go spend our time in private life and that's another thing i am interested in if i write the, or if or when i write the book on jefferson one of the driving questions to my mind that i'm still not sure i have the answer to yet is what how how did the founders ultimately balance their value of private life with the value of public life? Mm. Um, you know, as I think that Adams agreed would agree with his wife about how there is this there is this sort of inner tension or conundrum within politics that there's a kind of fleetiness and vanity to it that's not fulfilling, and yet at the same time they see it as their duty their patriotic duty to serve and that there's a good in it. And so how, how do you, um, how, how do you make these things compatible coherently 
when Jefferson says, I just want to go back to my farm and my family and my books. Um, is he is he is he really sincere that that, that that's that that's the most important thing? It, it, did Adams really view that as the most important thing? Or on the other hand, did they were their ambitions to be to become president, great statesman? Did they see that? Did they see that as the highest thing? And I I'm not, and that, that may be an individual level question, depending on the founder. I'm not sure if there's like one answer to the whole the entire founding generation. Certainly but, Washington with the, the myth of Cincinnatus and his plow and going and fighting and then returning and sure, for sure. I mean that and that's that's a great and, and if and if you do look at it that way, what is the value of politics? If it's is it just that it's instrumental to you know making the making the possible flourishing at Mount Vernon or Monticello or wherever it is? Um or and if so, then what is then then how can you attract how can you attract people to serve and 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 go into politics? Um, if it's if it's just like taking out the trash, to, <laughs> it's got to be done. But was there any value in it? And can you make it? But they but they don't seem to talk about it that way in, in a, other times. They 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 seem sometimes to talk about though there is this intrinsic good to it. Um, what, what is that? And I I find that to be an interesting question of political philosophy and one that's interesting to explore in their own thoughts so yeah maybe i'll get into that so um anyway well that's that we'll look forward to whatever whatever comes of their many many projects and i think both the book on idolatry and a book on jefferson and anything else you come up with would be very welcome back on the new books network okay. and yeah. with that I will just thank the author we've been talking to today, Cody W. Cooper, co-author with Justin Buckley Dyer of the 2022 book, The Classical and Christian Origins of American Politics, Political Theology, Natural Law, and the American Founding. And thank you, listeners. Thanks, Cody. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you very much.